Hello, welcome or welcome back to the Just Eat Normally podcast for eating disorder recovery with me, Dr. Rachel Evans. I am a psychologist, hypnotherapist with a PhD in the psychology of eating and specialist training in eating disorder recovery as well as personal experience of going through an eating disorder and coming out the other side which makes me super passionate about what I do and in every episode as with my one-to-one clients I'm bringing you academic knowledge, information and theories as well as therapeutic skills and personal experiences, be that mine or experiences of my guests, for a unique perspective on eating disorder recovery. So join me on this podcast as I speak to fellow experts in eating disorder recovery, eating disorder survivors with inspiring stories, and also throw in some bite-sized solo episodes with recovery tips or new ways for you to think about things. The goal of this podcast is to give you food for thought, to shift your mindset, to boost your motivation, and to help you find your own version of normal eating, which will allow you to live a truly nourished life. Hi, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me on. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for coming on. So I was wondering if you could introduce yourself to everyone. Yeah, so I'm Molly Fennig. Um, I'm a young adult fiction author who specializes in writing about mental illness. Um, and I am also going to be going to grad school for my PhD in clinical psych. So hopefully eventually I can call myself a therapist. Um, I big part of my life is my dog, Peach. She's training to be a therapy dog with me. Um, she doesn't specialize in eating disorders, but she specializes in eating, I like to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're from Minnesota. Um, we're going to grad school in St. Louis. And, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Oh, amazing. I was going to ask you to introduce her afterwards as well, actually, but we were already Perfect. introduced. <laughs> yeah, I really want to as well. Like, I'm doing little cover photos for the episode. So if you send me a picture of you and her, I'll put that on there. Awesome. on the cover so everyone can see her everyone loves her loves the dog um yeah so let's start where we usually start in these episodes so what was your relationship with food and your body like when you were growing up yeah I think that's something that the more I learn about eating disorders um the more thankful I am for that upbringing I think um my, my grandma was a nutritionist dietitian um and kind of her philosophy and my parents' philosophy was like, everything's healthy in moderation. And then they would always joke, they're like, but chocolate, you can have as much of that as you want because they're a very like chocolate loving family. Um, You know, so we had kind of some structure around meals. Like we had to have a fruit for a snack and a vegetable with dinner. Um, But otherwise it was kind of like try things. And if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. Um, Definitely dessert was just kind of, it was expected that we'd have dessert every day and things like that. So I think a really good balance of like structure, but flexibility with what we wanted to eat, which I'm really thankful for now and didn't realize how important that would be. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when you were talking, like that flexibility of like you say some rules, but then possibly it's not the end of the world if you don't have a vegetable for dinner, but let's try and do this most of the time. 
That's nice. Yeah, I love chocolate too. It's like my favorite thing. You know, people are like, oh, ice cream, but I take chocolate over ice cream all the time. <laughs> yeah, and if it is ice cream, it has to be chocolate ice cream. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not a fan of chocolate ice cream. I don't know why. Just weird. Huh. I don't know. But chocolate or ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> or the ones with like the chocolate pieces in is fine. Mm, yeah, those are good. Yeah. yeah so, what got you interested in eating disorders then? Because a lot of the guests that I've had have had personal experience and like myself as well, I had personal experience, which kind of sent me in this direction. But what was it for you? Yeah, so I think I was first like made aware of it as a concept besides, I mean, in school, they touch on like, oh, anorexia is a thing. Um, but I had a friend in high school who was um, named Molly uh, and i I didn't know that she had an eating disorder until she was recovering. And, you know, we had a friend who had talked a lot about diet culture at the lunch table. And um, my other friend told me about the eating disorder so that I could help steer the conversation away from that kind of diet talk that was really affecting other Molly. Um, But, you know, I remember being just shocked. I had no idea at all. Um, So looking into that, because as somebody with pretty good, you know, hungerfulness cues and really in tune with that, it wasn't something that I could imagine ever happening to me. Um, So I kind of looked into it then. Um, In college, I had a professor who brought up, you know, that like in binge eating, up to half are male identifying individuals. And, you know, I had never heard of a guy with any kind of eating disorder. So kind of looking into it more then. Um, And then I think the third main piece, I had a, um, a therapist who was convinced that I had an eating disorder. She was not a great therapist, but, um, you know, she's like, you have all these risk factors. Um, you know, I have some clinical anxiety and um, high perfectionism and things like that. And so really thinking about, you know, how do I have all these risk factors and um, not have an eating disorder? But a lot of the mindset and things I can really relate to with the anxiety. Um, and hopefully that, that comes across in the book, you know, looking at eating disorders from a lens of anxiety and control because that's something I definitely relate to. Yeah, that's interesting that she would almost diagnose you with an eating disorder when you were like, oh, I don't think so. Although that is common with people with an eating disorder to begin with, isn't it? You don't realise it in yourself and someone else is um, saying it, but interesting. How did you respond to that? I mean, so I was... I was studying psychology and neuroscience in school. So, you know, very self-aware, very much Mm -hmm. knew what was going on. And I was like, no, like I know that diagnostic criteria and like, I definitely don't meet them. Um, And there was some pushback on that, even though in other instances being very self-aware, she was kind of championing. So it was was interesting, like in that case, she like wasn't believing me. Um, And in some cases I I get why that would happen if you're in denial, but, it's weird that, she, you know, she took my word for, you know, having anxiety and not having other things, but not necessarily with eating disorders. Yeah, I think it's really difficult, isn't it? Because I think therapists sometimes probably have the experience of having someone with an eating disorder in the room and they're getting all the red flags and, and warnings, but the person is still saying, oh, no, I don't. Or they're almost trying to play the system and and answer no to a question when actually the real answer is yes, if that makes sense. So I think sometimes people are hyper-cautious. Like once I had a client who um, told me that she'd recovered, I asked her so many questions about 
uh, just because they're slippy and tricky, aren't they, sometimes when people say they've recovered? And I thought, is she just saying what she thinks I want to hear? But after asking her so many questions and I was like, actually, one of them, I'm sure she would have answered, you know, a bit differently if she still did. So, yeah, and it sounds like as well in the first um, sort of example or factor that you gave us and why you were interested in eating disorders, like, actually, you are such a good friend in that moment and she could kind of trust you to be able to steer the conversation and like learn more about eating disorders so I think that's definitely something that people can take away from the episode like learning how to respond when people do open up about an eating disorder yeah and I think it was definitely hard because you know when she brought it up I was like oh I can see how that could be triggering and I didn't really notice that that was happening right it's just so normalized Mm -hmm. that I think the first step was even just like recognizing when that friend was bringing those things up like oh wait that could be triggering um Mm -hmm. but then also figuring out a way to like validate because she was obviously having some issues that she wanted to talk about so validating those while also changing the subject you know Mm -hmm. um so like I know that that sounds really distressing for you and like what are you doing this weekend (laughs) or like Mm -hmm. um you know things like that and um that's really good life skill but it's definitely hard to learn yeah it's funny I say the exact same thing to my clients I can't remember if we said it on the podcast but the using and like yeah. you say the validating like I'm sorry to hear you're experiencing that and my favorite tv program is this and <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's part of what I um with training peach to be a therapy dog I think that's one of the huge a huge thing that I think animals bring is it's there's always something to talk about like they're always doing mm-hmm. something funny or you can always relate it back to them and um like I know even at like family functions or like with friends if there's not something to talk about I'm like I can talk about peach all day you know um so I love having that um being able to talk about her and um I could see how people with social anxiety having like emotional support animal can be really helpful to always have something to talk about yeah and they're probably just so calming presence as well like or doing like funny little things yeah exactly yeah oh so you're you're training her to be a support animal for you but when you qualify um as like a clinical psychologist are you going to use her with clients as well was that the plan or yeah hopefully um I'm hoping she can come to work with me and help with that um yeah she has to pass um some tasks so uh, we'll see how those go. But otherwise, uh, I think it'll be a really cool thing to for me and for clients to have her, like, in the room. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, like you say, I think it will be a really nice thing. Like, I've got a cat at home. She's always on my Instagram. But, like, she hates seeing other people apart from me and my husband. So no one ever really gets the chance to meet her unless I, like, see her in the window or something like oh it's your cat I'm like long gone somewhere (laughs) hiding under a bed (laughs) yeah okay so when did the idea for the book start yeah I think um so I had been writing a book and it wasn't really working because it there wasn't a message that I was like really feeling passionate about and you know I had been researching eating disorders, you know, to help support my friend and kind of understand that more. And um, and then I think after that class where we talked about male eating disorders, I was like, this feels like something really important to me to write about. Um, and so I kind of scrapped that book and rewrote it as 
as this. Um, but I think also then the more I was getting into it, the more I was like, oh, wait, like there were kids in my high school who wrestled and um, did all kinds of things for weight loss. And, um, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, wait, this has I've seen these things in my life. I just haven't been aware of them. Um, so that was kind of cool, but also kind of scary, I guess. Yeah, like you mentioned before, I think eating disordered behaviours or disordered eating behaviours or exercise and those sort of things, do you kind of go under the radar because some of them are so normalised? So for anyone that doesn't know, could you just give us a quick overview of the book? Obviously no spoilers and stuff, but just uh, an overview. Yeah, so it's a young adult fiction novel, also made up, um, and it's contemporary so there's no like fantasy or anything um but it follows a high school wrestler um a male and um his eating disorder journey and then there's also some mystery with um his brother who gets in a car crash and um i don't know how much more i can say beyond that but um really looking at you know mental health and eating disorders and in males and um, sports and the interplay of, of those things for sure. Yeah, we said off air, I just read the first couple of chapters, but I do like the um, kind of style of like the past and the future, kind of the before yeah. and after the eating disorder is a nice contrast, or I assume in the later chapters to see how it's building up to the point that has, I got to the point when um, he is a, Oh, was that the before? I think the before when he was at a wrestling match and met a girl who's ballerina. Yeah. I was like, oh, let's see where this goes. But then, um, yeah, Molly said she's fine for me to share this. I was saying, like, actually, um, I decided not to continue reading it because I almost have to read it with a slight guard up of, oh, this is about eating disorders. I don't want it to be triggering for me because I had a past um, of an eating disorder and I was like, to be fair, when I'm in my downtime, I just literally want to watch mindless TV. Um, I think I definitely will go back to it at some point, though, when I'm in the mood. Also, actually, slight side note as well, I really have to be in the mood to start a book. Like, I've got the second one in a series at the minute. I love the first one, but I find it so difficult to get into a book, even if I think I'm going to like the book. So I'm probably not the best person to, like, <laughs> read and review a book because um, all of that is going on too so it's definitely not a reflection of your book because I know you've got some amazing reviews of the book on Amazon as well um well that was really important to me like um you know in talking to people with eating disorders like hey if you want to read it I would love your feedback and if you're not in a place um you know to read it like absolutely do not do not read it and I really put a lot of effort and thought into you know putting trigger warnings on the first page and Mm -hmm. um, on the page itself and um, making sure that you know it's not like a shock factor thing or um, really making sure people know what they're getting into because it is a really tough subject and it's not an easy read and um, I don't know if you could make eating disorders an easy read but um, that definitely definitely understandable and I wouldn't want anyone who's feels like they would be triggered to even like try to read it yeah I think it is difficult isn't it with like the media and portraying eating disorders on tv like they don't want to glamorize it but then sometimes like you say it is a bit sensationalized or for shock value and I think with the book 
potentially you can go deeper into the whys and explore it a little bit more than maybe a this is a bit I was like I was just triggering people um you know two minutes of seeing someone in a bathroom and hearing the toilet flushing you know what's happened but you don't really know about or just seeing the person physically thin or something was that really important to you for the book as well yeah and I think because when you get like a two-minute clip on the news like they want to play into um what people already expect or think um so you're not breaking any um any expectations people have with eating disorders or um so it is going to be those kind of like caricatures or like um things like that versus um any kind of exploration that might go beyond that or um but yeah definitely wanted to get more into the why and like be a almost be more of a book for people who are supporting people with eating disorders who might encounter it, like to understand the thought process behind it more so than like, I mean, if you've had an eating disorder, you don't necessarily need to read about it. Right. Um, so, um, it was definitely important to me that it was not sensationalized and, um, that I got feedback from people who've had them, um, and that they felt like it was an, an accurate enough representation yeah, I think that sounds really helpful as well for people to, um, who are supporting someone with an eating disorder because it's almost like as well like the third person, isn't it? Like a bit removed that they can read about the behaviours but it's not as emotionally charged as when their loved one is doing those things to kind of understand about it more so than like just reading on the internet like anorexia is this and this criteria, like it's quite dry and you can't understand about it which is why I like doing the podcast and talking to people because it's more alive, like the book sounds more alive. Yeah, yeah, because I think you can't help somebody by knowing statistics. Like you can mm-hmm. help them if you know their thought processes and what's going to trigger them. And um, you don't get that from statistics or the news or anything. That's why when I was researching for this book, you know, I wanted to read firsthand accounts and documentaries and um, beyond just like how many people are affected. Like that's important and it doesn't give you any more information into um, how people feel. Yeah, I feel like eating disorders have a logic all of their own, which makes perfect sense when you're in it and doing it. But then when you look in hindsight, you're like, oh, that didn't quite make sense what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like a lot like a fear response. At least mm-hmm. that's how I think about it. For some people, you know, like um, logically, if you think about like a spider, it's not dangerous, but in the moment, it feels super dangerous and you feel like I would do anything to get away from the spider. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether it's logical or not, like that reaction feels logical in the moment. Yeah, I think I definitely um, agree with that. And I think a lot of my clients or in my experience, I was doing things to avoid fear or like the anxiety of not doing it almost. It wasn't I wanted to do the thing like get up really early and exercise, but it's like I think I'm going to feel so bad if I don't do this that I'm going to do this to avoid feeling bad. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And we see that a lot, like with the I, when I do research, you know, people saying, you know, I'm I'm just afraid of of not doing it, or um, I can't imagine not doing it. Like for some people, even it's just a habit. Like mm-hmm. at a certain point, it's just this is what I do. Um, but at least in the early stage, it's like really being averse to fear and uncertainty and anxiety. Yeah, and I think eating disorders are good in the sense of fulfilling the function, but not like <laughs> positive good um, at 
reducing fear because they you know they are quite numbing numbing emotions or soothing emotions um does that come through in the book as well I hope so Mm -hmm. (laughs) um I mean I think a lot of it is um some of when the eating disorder comes up is it serves as a way to cope with heavy emotion Mm -hmm. and um almost like a way to just like survive um but then you get breakdown in communication with people because, you know, you don't have those feelings anymore or um, hyper focus on food or food behaviors. So um, I hope that comes across in the book because um, I know that's really important for a lot of people. Yeah, I think and as you identify that, it just spills out into all areas of your life as well, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Ah, I'm like, you know, what? I am going to read the rest of it now. You've intrigued me. I'm like, OK, yeah. Gonna, I'll take it on my holiday with me. <laughs> you find Paul. Well, not that we're going to Ireland because my husband's from Ireland, so a little oh, bit fun. fancy. But who knows what's going on with our lockdown rules at the minute? We're they keep putting countries on the list of countries we can travel to, but then they keep changing their minds, so you might get stuck abroad, basically, <laughs> which I don't oh, want no. to happen. So yeah. Although I guess there are worse places to get stuck, but still wouldn't be ideal. Yeah, I wouldn't mind getting stuck abroad because I can work from anywhere. Like, I think I have got a couple of clients in person, but mostly on Zoom. So the in-person ones would just, I'm sure they would be fine about it. <laughs> They'll probably just be jealous that I was by the pool, but my husband can't uh, take a few extra weeks in the sun, unfortunately. But yeah, I would love to learn more about your research as well into eating disorders. Is it quite qualitative? So like speaking to people... Um, yeah, so I, right now I'm at the University of Minnesota. Um, I'm a research coordinator, um, work on a number of studies. Um, so I do some brain scanning. Um, I do some like more behavioral, um, like change programs. So, um, working with people directly to change behavior, um, as more of a treatment, um, some stuff in between surveys um but then this fall for grad school uh the lab i'm in is really focused on treatment uh especially treatment dissemination so making sure it's accessible to people um so like apps and other innovations and then um community outreach things like that um podcasts i guess (laughs) um and with that my special interest is the overlap with anxiety and like treating both and um, you know, why are we so good at treating anxiety, but not eating disorders, even though they're so comorbid and, um, often share a lot of similar mechanisms. Um, so that, that's what I'm interested in and what I've been looking at. Oh, that sounds so interesting. What are you brain scanning like for brain imaging for? Yeah. So it depends on the study. Um, Mm -hmm. but we look at everything, from like emotions to um, like you're talking about the blunting of emotions mm-hmm. to like habit formation to um, like some neurofeedback. Um, I don't know if people know about that, but like uh, being able to learn and to regulate uh, certain parts of your brain based on feedback you get on the scanner, things like that. 
Sounds interesting. You sound like you're covering a lot of bases with these studies, lots of different areas that people might get stuck. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say as well about anxiety and eating disorders because a lot of my clients as well have got anxiety or some have OCD, quite a lot of them have depression as well. And this is off topic, it's not about <laughs> the book or what you thought you were talking about, but my like pet peeve at the minute, and you'll have to bear with me because I'm quite visual, I'm going to do an Instagram post about it at some point, but it's like the DSM, so the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for people who don't know, is the classification of mental health disorders really. Um, and so basically people got together, well people with expertise and experience, let's say that, but got together and decided this is anorexia, let's put these criteria together. This is bulimia, let's put these criteria together. And then, obviously, um, binge eating and avoidant restrictive and the other eating disorders. And then there's the other specified feeding eating disorder if you don't neatly fit into one of those boxes. So it's almost like we've got these squares that people should fit into, but actually disordered eating in my brain is like a big circle of loads of different behaviours and people don't neatly fit into it, but then you feel invalidated if you can't get a diagnosis because what you're experiencing is very valid, but it just doesn't fit in a square. And I'm just really feeling a bit annoyed at the squares at the minute, if that makes sense. So it's all with anxiety as well. It's like we've made this square that's anxiety and these criteria, but actually in reality, it's got a lot of overlap with other things like our behavior just doesn't fit in boxes and categories. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, no, oh. for sure. I totally, totally agree. I'm for a while, um, OSFED, which is the other specified mm-hmm. feeding and eating disorders, was like one of the biggest uh, categories, which doesn't make sense for another category. Um, and I think with some of the criteria, like anorexia being weight based, um, really is invalidating for people who live in larger bodies mm-hmm. and um, doesn't map on to the you know, the science of metabolism and set points and things like that. And really, I think is a good demonstration of our fat phobia as a society. Um, and I could go on into that more, but um, <laughs> I think, right, that our categories aren't great. And also from like an insurance standpoint, it's really hard because if you have um, spectrum, you still have to pick a, a cutoff point. And so no matter what, like, you're going to have to pick that cutoff point. So it's, it's hard because I, I agree that the categories are not great. And they're maybe, they're obviously better than nothing. So we can get insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I have a lot of issues with them too. Yeah, you have a different system to us, don't you? Because we have the NHS, which is wonderful and has been serving us very well throughout COVID. But still, they have got certain criteria and they can only see who is inverted commas sick enough which often does translate to the people who are underweight or have different comorbid behaviours and still a lot of people kind of slip through or can't get the help, which is why it sounds really amazing that you're doing work on an app to help people. Yeah, yeah, and especially, you know, a lot of people who have, um, even if they meet criteria, they won't seek out help or... Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a lot of work to set up a doctor's appointment and to go and um, that level of like admitting that things are this bad. Um, you know, I have a I have a friend who's suffered with an eating disorder since high school and just recently is like, oh, I think I need help. And it's like, you know, that took years and years to get to mm-hmm. that point. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of room for apps and other things. Um, 
Yeah. But either way, it's based on criteria, no matter which system you're in and somebody picks them and um, for better, for worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think the takeaway from that for people listening is like we said before, and you were saying about your friend earlier, your experience is valid, whatever that is. You don't need someone else to like stamp it, but then also side conversation, which we might've had before on the podcast. I don't think it's also, also not helpful to overly identify with a criteria or label yourself with the eating disorder because then it's almost hard to move away from it when you've got that label so it's a tricky balance isn't it I think of of that yeah and I think um one thing that's similar between anxiety and eating disorders is um they're very what we call egocentric so people Mm -hmm. feel like it it's part of them like I'm an anxious person I'm somebody who is perfectionistic um versus like depression people are like I'm not that's not usually who I am. Um, so I think it's easier to get over something like that. Cause it's like, that's not part of me that that doesn't define me versus like anxiety and eating disorders feel very like part of us. Yeah. Isn't it? I love that quote about, um, your words don't describe your reality. They defi- define it. Yeah. So all the time you're saying I am anorexic or I am bulimic. You're giving that your identity more. And I do hypnotherapy, um, as well with clients and then that's basically helping their brain see what do you want instead and tell your brain what you want in the positive language because if you're saying like well I don't want anorexia anymore but your brain is still thinking of the image of anorexia so you know if you say like don't think of a pink rabbit or don't think of your dog being green like what is the first thing that you think of it's what you don't want so how can we help people describe what they do want but I think often when people are so deep in the eating disorder, sometimes you don't even know what you want as a positive. But. Right. Like, how can I give up this control and this very immediate need that it's serving for some possible future gain that I don't even know if it's going to happen? Um, like, that's super scary and takes a lot of courage, I think, to say, like, you know, giving up my need for control and having this anxiety in the moment is worth it to me to feel better in the future. Yeah, I actually did a workshop um, yesterday that was helping people explore like the pros and cons of staying the same and the pros and cons of changing, which sounds really simple, but it's really like enlightening for people. And in that I was saying, actually my clients who, I was gonna say do the best, but I say it in inverted commas, like kind of just have that extra fire, I let's say. Um, they've realized that they're going to feel anxious about changing, but actually the anxiety they feel about staying the same. So what I was saying earlier about having to make themselves get up and exercise in the morning, otherwise they're going to feel anxious or doing behaviours that they don't like doing is actually more anxiety day to day. Even if they get maybe that short term relief of feeling a bit in control or feeling like they've managed their emotions with a binge or something, that is actually bigger than the anxiety of kind of pushing through and changing some things. So I think that's always interesting to think about for yourself as you're going throughout the day. And I think, sorry, I know I'm talking way more than you in this, sorry, it's an interview. Um, but for me as well, my like turning point in recovery is when I realised, oh, there are so many negatives to this. Like before, I'd been quite happy with the behaviours. People were telling me like, you're trying to be really healthy, but actually you're not being healthy at all. But once it got to behaviours that I didn't like doing anymore, then it was like, okay, I want to recover. I want to be over and out of this now. Yeah, and that's really hard because that's very cognitive and in the moment can be very emotional. So like um, even if cognitively you think 
you know, I want to get better. If emotionally you're not doing well, um, mm-hmm. I mean, our emotions are very powerful for, you know, evolutionary and other reasons. And um, food is very um, evolutionary, evolutionarily um, motivating. And um, it's kind of hard to overcome that. So I, people even trying to do that, I think, is really impressive. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, I definitely think it's multi-level and multi factors helping people's well-being and all the sort of little bits that kind of come together to help I'm like really excited to read the book now as well I'm like oh does he reach that point like what happens to him in the end so yeah and I think I don't know what your um, thoughts are on like medications and I know they're different for eating disorders versus anxiety but um, I think one of the ways that that can be helpful for some people is you know almost like a life jacket where it's just like Mm -hmm. it's not getting you um, to shore, but it's like keeping you afloat so that you can swim. Um, and, um, I think in that way, like helping you sit with that anxiety in the moment so that you can get to where you need to go. Um, not obviously then not taking the place of therapy or, um, being a cure-all or, um, the best choice for everybody. But I think, um, in that way, like medication can be really helpful for some people too. Yeah, I think that's really important to explore, like, the pros and cons of having medication. Like, often when clients come to me, quite a lot of them are already on medication for anxiety or depression, and how well they get on with that is sort of variable, but the ones that aren't, um, we do discuss, would this be a good idea, and kind of exploring it, because actually in my own experience, being a psychologist, um, I didn't and also I think as well part of my eating disorder was like orthorexia and then I didn't want to take tablets because someone had told me oh that's bad you shouldn't take paracetamol you should can't even think what else you would do to I don't know smell a peppermint oil when you've got a headache which is fine it's something I still do but I would also take paracetamol now um if I did have a really bad headache um but at the time I was kind of like anti-medication and then I went to the NHS and maybe they didn't say you definitely need medication but they didn't seem to make it like it was going to be my choice. They were just kind of like, sometimes I'm like, am I remembering this correct? But in my memory of it, which may or may not be exactly accurate, uh, they were like, we, well, we can't help you unless you also take SSRIs because I have bulimia. Um, Cause that's going to help you manage the emotions. So you're not having to make yourself sick. Um, but I got really angry actually them telling me that I needed medication actually really helped me because I got so angry because I was like they don't think that I can do this without medication I'm going to show them that I can obviously I did Um, but so for me it was like in a weird backwards way actually good not having medication because I had such motivation um, to recover but I definitely think they have got a place for people as well. I think it goes back to that um, we were talking about with therapists like believing their clients like how much agency do we give people in their own um you know mental health journey and that gets really blurry with um with psychology um because you know how well can they make informed decisions versus like knowing their body best and I think in the past we've maybe jumped a little bit too far towards taking away people's autonomy um and that's, that's not great. Um, but yeah, I think it, it should be a choice. And, um, I come from a very medical family. My mom's a, a surgeon and, um, so very pro medicine, but when I was having really bad anxiety and depression, um, 
I was like, no, I'm absolutely not taking medication. Um, I ended up taking medication, but, um, you know, even being somebody who is so like raised in such a medical environment, there's just such a negative stigma around those things. And, um, a lot of fear about like what might happen. So totally understandable. Yeah. Oh, you made such a good point. And then my brain forgot what it was because <laughs> it's like 10 <laughs> o'clock for me. So it's like, mm, um, Oh no, I'm going to have to ask the podcast lady to edit. You said something really good and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to pick up on that. Just say before the medication. Oh, autonomy. about the autonomy. Yeah, yeah, it was because sometimes as well, I've had clients who are eating very little and it's hard for your brain to work when you're eating very little. And they've wanted a session with me. And I've, so how I work, I do breakthrough sessions, which is three hours and one off, or it's a program of three months. I don't do like per hour um sessions and they didn't want the program I didn't think it would be a good fit but they wanted the three-hour session and I was thinking but the likelihood that this is everything you need for recovery is very low and I'm not sure if you can implement it but then I also thought actually I don't want to undermine them and me decide for them that they can't go away and implement it but to me when they were talking to me before about booking the session I was like to me, the eating disorder sounds so strong that they hardly have a voice in there. But I thought, well, something is better than nothing. So we did the session. I'm not sure what happened because I've not spoken to her afterwards. But it's really hard because I thought, I'm not sure if I want to take someone's money if I don't think that they're going to be able to implement the things afterwards. It really is difficult to decide sometimes, isn't it? I think, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think um, that part is talked about enough. Like, you're not eating enough. Your brain isn't eating enough either. And know mental processes really slow down and ability to make decisions is not great and um yeah I mean there's there's so many issues with you know people saying like carbs are bad or you know like your brain can only eat carbs (laughs) things like that and um so it's it's especially hard I think with eating disorders where how do we assess like is the brain functioning well enough to make decisions? Um, and like, what would people want if their brain was functioning versus what they want now? And is one more valid than the other? I don't know. Yeah, it's difficult though, isn't it? Because then it comes to like, actually there people are risking their life when we have to try and decide, like you say, is one more valid than the other? Well, if someone was going to jump off a bridge, you'll probably be like, come on, don't jump off that bridge. <laughs> and they get a point when, do you know, you see people, those photos, don't you, of people literally hugging someone on a bridge to stop them jumping off. It's almost like we're having to do that with people every day pretty right. much. Yeah, although with, with obviously with eating disorders, then you have to eat multiple times a day versus mm-hmm. like someone who's suicidal, you can just take them off the bridge. and um, So it's, definitely more layers of complexity that that aren't there and you know yeah forcing people to eat versus not and um it's interesting the literature seems to change on that whether that's a good thing or not and um yeah yeah luckily in private practice I don't have to get into (laughs) that I would just be like refer 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 (laughs) this uh, you know wouldn't feel ethical for me to be working with someone who was at that um stage but it's definitely things that need to be researched and looked into as well 
I was going to say something else really good and my brain's gone. I'm really sorry. It's just like, what's going on today? Um, no. <laughs> no, it's gone. You, you're making really good points. I'm like, yes, yes. I probably about, I'm probably not even just going to edit this for all just know my brain's just gone today. Um, oh, no, it's gone again. I had it. Oh, yeah, just that recovery is not just one choice to recover once actually like you say it's something that you have to make over and over again but the thing is the more you make that choice the easier it gets to make it when you start eating enough Mm -hmm. that's like I think with any kind of habit or like if you look at neural pathways like the more you choose something the stronger that neural pathway gets um so that's hopeful for people who are you know going through it um that at the beginning when your brain isn't functioning is when it's going to be the hardest. Um, but it, it definitely gets easier and um, hopefully becomes more more of a habit than the disordered eating. Oh, something funny happened the other day, actually, because um, I was thinking, actually, now sometimes I forget that I used to do stuff that used to be such a habit. And then I only think when a client says it, and I think, oh, yeah, I used to do that. Or uh, when someone else responds a different way that I'm, like, not bothered about stuff anymore. But they're like, oh, Rachel. So I was, like, eating dinner the other day. And then there was, like, a bit of something that was really hard. And I, like, pushed it to the side of my plate. And then my husband, bless him, went, like, reached over and took it off my plate. And I was like, oh, it's fine. I would have just left it there on the side. But it's because when I had the eating disorder if I didn't want to eat something, I couldn't have it on my plate, I would get like really anxious and really upset about it. So sometimes I used to have a side plate. So for example, if I decided like, that's just an example, like a jacket potato or something, and I didn't want to eat the skin, I couldn't have it on my plate. Whereas now it's fine for me to have it, but I just couldn't do it before. So I don't know if he was just automatically like, oh, just take it off a plate. Not that that's been a problem for like years, but it was really funny. That's like, it was fine. (laughs) And I think that's like, it shows just how important it is to have people who are like so supportive in your journey. And I think one of the best skills you learn from therapy um, for probably any mental illness is creating a support system um, and, you know, communicating with them what you need and want. And um, that can be hard, you know, cause then you have to, you know, be vulnerable and open up and know what you need and want um, to be able to communicate that. But um, I think that, you know, it is more of a community journey sometimes than just an individual one, um, which can be hard if you, you don't feel like you have people around you who understand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why, like you say, your book can be really important that people can get that insight into the thought processes of what it's like, or maybe even just, because I did a podcast once and then I went off in this big rant about everything going on in your head. Like, because sometimes as well, I got to the point that my parents would just ask me a question around food when we were around food. And I would like to snap at them because I had so much going on in my head. I was like, oh, they've put that on my plate. How much of that? Like so many questions were going on in my head about the food. that I couldn't even answer like another question. I think people don't realize that. They just think, oh God, she's being really snappy today. Unless... you can give them that insight yeah I have that with anxiety too you know like if I'm if someone's really bothering me um like I don't know if they're tapping or other things that are just like really making me anxious and then they ask me a question and I get really snappy and they're like just ask you a question because they obviously don't know that that's bothering me um so I think 
but it can be hard if if you're having that like constant stream of thoughts you can't verbalize all of them um so um that can be really hard but also where communication can come in i think um which is definitely easier said than done but um something that i still work on like oh i'm, yeah. I'm irritated but not necessarily at them it's just whatever else is going on and they happen to be here yeah I think sometimes as well just explaining that to people kind of breaks the air a little bit doesn't it and they can understand that and or yeah like the other day I was doing I was doing my workshop then my husband was asking me some questions oh no that was it he was making dinner bless him um but then it was like going to be 15 minutes later than he said but I was getting snappy about it but only because it's like oh then I've only got this shorter amount of time before my workshop that I wanted to prepare in that time. Like usually I'm pretty flexible about what I'm eating now. It doesn't really bother me. But just because it was like, oh, I've messed up my plan and I'm already anxious. I call it being prickly. So it's imagine like if you've got prickles on the side of your body and then stuff comes along and sticks to it. But sometimes, so say if you've had a bad night's sleep and then you're prickly, something happens that annoys you, it wouldn't usually. Like someone's driving slowly or something. You're like, oh God, why is this person going so slowly? Whereas if you're like smooth, like you've had a good night's sleep, you're really happy about something, then they just things kind of slide off you and you're not so bothered about it. So I was prickly the other day. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can apologize for being prickly. <laughs> yeah, well that can be hard when you um have things planned out or um you know, want things a certain way and they maybe necessarily don't necessarily know that or things are happening that are out of your control and um yeah, just being being okay with that uncertainty and those emotions is it's really hard. Let me know when you figure out how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think I calmed down pretty quickly because I was like, okay, I'm overreacting to this. <laughs> like, I think sometimes you react, don't you? And then you're like, oh, okay, it's literally only 15 minutes. It's not the end of the world. I'm not going to be late. <laughs> um, the other thing as well, where I think it's really important for other people to sort of have that insight and understand is like, do you know what we were talking before about like the cognitive um level that you can't always do yourself when you're in the situation at where you can if you practice and kind of get better at it but sometimes it's hard actually having someone else to do that for you but they need that insight and understanding to almost give you those other perspectives as well yeah I have um one of my best friends she's had some similar issues with anxiety and some depression and um we always talk to each other when we're having a bad day and um we at one point she was like, you know, you say the exact same things to me. And I'm like, I know, but when you say it, when I'm feeling this way, it feels different. Um, it's like, you need someone to say those things, even if, even if you know them, um, which is maybe kind of ridiculous, but, um, but then also, you know, she's holds me accountable where I'm like, I'm really irritated about that. And she's like, you know, that, that emotion's valid. And that's not a situation where you should be irritated. Um, which I think is great to have that because I know she's telling me the truth and keeping me accountable and um yeah yeah having that support. that sounds lovely I'm glad you've got that relationship with your friend both helping each other growing and yeah it's a shame that peaches can't talk <laughs> be like, oh, it's okay <laughs> she does well she's actually um she's very intuitive which mm -hmm. I think is really impressive like if um whenever I'm upset she'll come and lay on my lap almost like a grounding um, thing. Um, if if ever I'm crying, she licks my face, and it's hard to 
it's hard to cry when she's looking in your face because it's so cute. <laughs> um, but she just always, I don't know how she knows, but seems to pick up on those body cues, um, which I think is really impressive. But yeah, I also am maybe glad she can't talk. I, I feel like she would just constantly talk. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think animals are amazing. I watched, uh, I think it was on Netflix. It might have been on Sky though. I'm not sure. Um, about like animal intuition, basically. I, oh, it was called The Unexplained with William Shatner. It was really good. They did, they did ones about different things as well. This one's about animals. And then it was like before a tornado in America, apparently all these birds just migrated south where they weren't meant to. And then this tornado came and it's like, how did they know two weeks before that tornado that it was going to come and destroy their houses that was the only one I remember but there were lots of other animals who just knew oh or like when dogs know you've got cancer and stuff and they can smell it and they know I'm like this is amazing that is amazing I'm like obviously there's probably a scientific explanation but either way still so cool it is still incredible or like the horses that work with um like war veterans and stuff are really cool yeah, yeah, I've actually been um, reading a bit of research on that, like animal-assisted therapy and like um, how that helps. Some of it is like, like I was saying, grounding. So making people kind of get out of their heads and their emotions and feel in the moment, which is kind of what meditation does. Um, you know, having someone or something they can talk to that's not mm-hmm. judgmental, um, having a routine and structure. Um, I think, I mean, I didn't realize, I thought, you know, emotional support animals like that sounds nice, but does it really help? And having Peach is, you know, forcing me to go outside and talk to people. And she says hi to everybody. So, um, you know, I get a lot of interaction with people that I normally wouldn't. Um, and we have a structure, like she tells me when it's time for bed. <laughs> so I don't stay up late and <laughs> um, things like that, that I think you don't really think about that um, animals can be really helpful for. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think um, even if it's not trained as a support animal, but maybe someone's a little better, they've noticed their mental health isn't great and you've got the means to support an animal. I think getting a pet is really lovely. Like, So we've got a cat getting a new kitten tomorrow. My husband is not happy about it. I'm so excited. It's so cute. I've not got a name for it yet, though. Um, but like, sometimes when my clients follow me on Instagram and they see my cat and then one of them said, Oh, I was thinking about getting a cat and she's got two cats now that are so cute and I'm a little bit jealous because they are so cute so Aww. love it oh my cat of oh my clients like want my want my cat <laughs> but she has said it is so relaxing yeah to have it I and don't you know can stroke it, it and I'll be like oh. I don't know um the your like laws over over there but here like um if you have an emotional support animal, so you just need a letter from like a psychiatrist or a psychologist, um, they can live with you anywhere, even if it's not like a, a place that allows animals and you don't have to pay like pet rent because they're not considered pets, they're considered like um, disability aids. Um, so I think that's really awesome, even if people can't afford like pet rent. Um, but um because initially I thought, oh, that like that's kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, how much can animals really help? But you know, I I definitely see why that's a thing, and I think it's great that we have that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that. I'll look into it. I'm just thinking of the other support animals I've seen. One was on Facebook, and it was a dog, 
a support dog that goes to Disney and it wears its little Mickey Mouse ears and all the characters like love it and it loves all the characters, it's really cute if you want to google the video. Um, then another one was like when there was a mini horse on a plane because it was a person support animal that everyone's like what is this horse doing on the plane? <laughs> Well, that's the other thing. Um, in the U.S., they, um, the Department of Transportation just um, like outlawed, or I don't know what the word is, um, emotional support animals. So um, you can't bring emotional support animals on the plane. You, they have to be brought on as pets. So you have to pay the hundred, two hundred dollars um, if they're bigger than the, under the seat. They can't come with you, um, which I think is really sad and ridiculous, even if I understand that people were abusing that. Um, it's too bad because um, I think it's really hindering a lot of people who could benefit from flying with one. Yeah, it's probably one of those, like, someone's done something stupid that just ruins it for everyone then who is actually benefiting and using it sensibly, isn't it? Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... Thank you for coming to talk to us. And last question, um, what would you say to someone who came to you and said, I just want to eat normally? Um, so I think I would say that their definition of normal um, is something that they should define first um, because it mm -hmm. is going to vary by person. And um, hopefully it's not the societal normal because that would be um, what we would define maybe as disordered with diet culture and things. Um, but I think really to focus on, you know, getting your hunger keys back so you can eat intuitively and not having foods that you're afraid of and um, feeling like you can, I think going back to, I guess, how I was raised, some flexibility and structure with um, maybe some guidelines, but being able to change how much you eat based on your hunger, what you eat based on your um, cravings, um, and then also knowing that that is a long journey if you weren't didn't grow up with that and um, is something that a lot of people don't necessarily get to. Um, so if you're there, or almost there, I think that that's, that's an awesome thing that you should celebrate because a lot of people don't get to experience that in their life, so. Amazing answer. Very comprehensive. <laughs> I can tell you a researcher as well. It's funny when people answer that question. Some people launch into it and then um, quite a few people are like, how would you define normal? What does normal mean to you? You can tell who's like a therapist and, <laughs> and stuff. But thank you yep. so much for coming on. Thanks for having Peach and I. Yay, bye. We didn't hear her. I didn't know if she was going to be like, Woof. She's really sleepy. She um, was at doggy daycare. So She's passed out. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Just Eat Normally podcast. I hope you found this enjoyable, interesting, and insightful and informative. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to hear the next episode. And just remember that you can check out the show notes for contact details and extra resources. 